It's the late 300s, and there appears to be a crack in the great Roman civilization. Many Germanic peoples are invading the empire, and in 476, the last Roman emperor is removed from power, ending one of the greatest civilizations of all time. These factors led to a period of time referred to as the Middle or Dark Ages, a time between ancient and modern times a time when many communities became self-sufficient, leading to a feudal system where powerful lords divided their lands among lesser lords or vassals. And in exchange for this land, the vassals pledged service and loyalty to the Lord. Our medieval storytellers will share their knowledge through historical fiction narratives. These stories are based on individual and whole class research and their exploration of the Middle Ages in Europe. For FCI, I'm Carl Kinnear, and this is Medieval Storytellers. You will hear interesting stories about the lives of serfs, lords and ladies, merchants, kings and queens, squires and knights, knowledge about feudalism, the Crusades, trade, black death, and the eventual decline of feudalism in Europe my students have gained a deeper understanding of the history, culture, geography, government, and economy during the Middle Ages. We hope you enjoy these historical fiction stories. The Rebellion. Born till the land as sweat dripped down his face, the sun beat down on him like an arrow to his head. Ever since the punishment from God, many of the serf, many of the serfs at the Lord's manor had died, which meant harder work for those who lived. Born's brother Robert shared in the disgust of the manor's lord, Sir James. Sir James used to be a knight, but was now more like a merchant, living in the splendor of his serfs and vassals. Every month he would come to the man manor demanding more food than the month before. Atop his white steed, dressed in the finest of silks, Sir James would come to the manor to demand more food from each family, this time to Bourne's hobble. Sir James stopped at Bourne's hobble and tied up his horse, then entered. Inside the hobble stood three cots, a table, and a small fire in the middle. The air in the hobble was musky and smelled of smoke and disease. Bourne's wife, Hagatha, had been pressing onions, grinding wheat, readying the meat in preparation for the meal. Bourne's family and Sir James sat down to eat, including Bourne and Hagatha's son, Joseph. Joseph was a bright boy with brown hair and brown eyes who was learning to read. Bourne led the table in grace, then started to carve the meat. As this was happening, Sir James murmured under his breath, This looks ghastly. As they started to eat, Bourne half-whispered, Ever since God's great punishment, we've lost many serfs, and the winter is coming. Yes, murmured Sir James. Do you think we could offer less grand than the month before? Bourne asked. How dare you, a lowly serf, ask to supply me with less food? 
My armies grant you protection, and you can't so much as grow up food for us, snapped Sir Dance. If you all didn't eat like pigs, we may not have this problem, Goran stammered. Sir James stared at Boran in disgust, stood up, declaring, I will need 150 bales of wheat this month. Boran stammered, What? But that's... Please notify the other serfs, Sir James interjected. You can't do this, Boran stammered. I already have, Sir James sneered. Born stared in horror as Sir James left the hovel. He immediately started to spread the word. Arm yourselves. We're starting a rebellion. Born assembled the force of 100 or so men and women. The plan was to siege Sir James' castle, which was 50 miles northeast. But first they needed to gather weapons and add more pe peasants to this makeshift army. First they gathered their forces and headed to the town of York. Born knew in York the opinion of Sir James was low ever since he raised the tax to 30 pence per month, and many would join their cause. When they arrived, the town looked abandoned. Then one of the serfs, Robert, in fact, noticed some, some sound coming from the town hall. The army looked inside. Surprise! The army looked inside, surprised that the entire town of York was having a forum. Boren and his makeshift army entered the town hall and walked down the aisle. The crowd started to whisper, Why are they here? Is, this, is that the leader of the rebellion? We have come to this fine city of York to ask that you join our rebellion against Sir James, bellowed Boren. There were murmur, murmurs in the crowd, then one man yelled, Yes, let's start a rebellion. Boren led about 900 or so men and women out of the hall. Boren had now assembled a force of 1,000 men and women, yet many of them didn't have equipment. Boren thought long and hard, then decided to go to a battlefield where many men had died in order to collect their armor and equipment. They reached the battlefield, which was a road with forest on both sides. It was obvious the men had been ambushed from the forest. The army then started to dress themselves with equipment. Many found plates of armor and longbows, some bloodstained. They began to arm themselves. Out of sheer luck, two catapults were found at the far side of the road, untouched. Born delegated eight men to, to care for and arm the catapults. By nightfall, the army was shaping up, with many men and women looking ready for battle. As night passed, Sir James heard of the news of peasants arming themselves in rebellion. He thought for a moment, then decided to send 100 knights to put down the rebellion. As sunrise drew near, some awakened and started to stir. One man noticed knights in armor riding across the road. The man screamed, Wake up, brothers! It's time to attack! As if a volcano erupted, the army awoke and attacked the, the knights from both sides. The knights stood no chance as they, were as they were beat senselessly from all angles. With this quick victory, the army was feeling quite confident and decided now was the time to take on the king. The army marched and rose to the castle. On the way, they found many infected corpses, which Born decided they could utilize to launch into Sir James' castle. As they neared the castle... The eight men got catapults ready to fire on Bourne's grand. Two decaying corpses launched into 
into the castle walls. Men and women alike screamed inside the castle. Boron then looked to see if there were any openings in the castle because there was a moat around the entire thing. Then he saw it, an opening in the castle which they discarded their waste. Boron got six men together and told them the plan to get into the castle. The six man, men ran across the field to get to the opening. As they got to it, they started to climb. The stench was rancid, but they kept climbing. They reached the, the summit, realizing they have infiltrated Sir James' castle. The six men sprinted down the hallways, trying to find the king's quarters. They ran around the castle for about ten minutes, then found the king. There were two guards, which they took by surprise by banging hammers against both of their helmets. Then they took the king to the, to the catapult by sword point and told him to give in. The king resisted but, to no resisted, but to no avail. The king begged for mercy. Please, I will treat you better. Should have thought of that earlier, replied Boron. The king got inside the catapult, accepting his fate. Boron then catapulted the king 300 yards west, and his final words were, no. The Runaway Surf. Chop, chop, chop. The continual swinging of the scythe on the grain was making Nelson go mad. Get used to it, he told himself. Chop, chop. Nelson stopped inside. If only I were free, Nelson thought. Get to work, Nell, Papa called. We have a lord to feed. Nelson nodded and started to chop again. Besides, thought Nelson, according to Papa, freedom is overrated. Nelson was not entirely sure he believed him, though. Is Lord Henry coming today? asked little Evie. It was the next day, and she, Papa, and Nelson were sitting on the floor, waiting for the Lord to arrive. Yes, Papa answered gruffly. Just then, the door swung open, and Lord Henry came in. Nelson studied him while he bowed. He wore many colors and had a certain plumpness to him. His face was stiff and unwelcoming. I've come to tell you of a great sickness, he abruptly said. It plagues this fair earth and is spreading very quickly. It seems to be passed along just by looking at somebody, he continued. It is called the Black Death. His words settled over Nelson like manure. He shivered. When Papa finally responded, it sounded cold. Is there anything else, my lord? No, that is all. Lord Henry got up from the measly chair Nelson had offered him seconds ago and strutted up the door. Are we all going to die? asked poor little Evie. Papa immediately went to her side and murmured comforting words to her. Nelson wondered if his family was going to get the Black Death. He couldn't stand the thought of poor little Evie getting sick. If any one of his family members caught it, he might just break. As Nelson was working in the fields the next day, he saw something strange on his papa's arm. What's that, papa? he asked. This? papa pointed to his arm. Oh, it's just a bump, he told Nelson when he nodded. But it's black, Nelson replied, but then immediately regretted it. Papa's face darkened and he looked away. I'm so sorry, Nelson whispered. There was a long, suffering silence. That seemed to last a lifetime before Papa grunted, It's fine. Later that night, when Nelson was going to sleep, he heard a thump on the ground. He got up and walked to, over to where the sound came from. 
Papa was lying on the ground with black lumps all over him. Nelson knew immediately that he was dead. The next morning, Nelson was silent. What is it, Nellie? Little Evie asked. Where's Papa? Nelson had a horrible feeling in the pit of his stomach. She didn't know, he thought. Nelson started to sob. Little Evie started to say something, but it died on her lips. She had seen the body. Everything was a blur to Nelson after that horrific event. Work, eat, sleep, it all blended together. He didn't even notice that Evie had started to get black lumps. When Nelson finally got out of his trance, it wasn't for a good reason. He had finally spotted Evie's black lumps. No, no, not you too, Nelson wailed when he spotted them. He had gone back into the house to see why she wasn't doing the laundry. She had multiple lumps all over her face and she was barely breathing. Nellie, she breathed. Goodbye. No, Nelson screamed as little Evie took her dying breath. He collapsed to the floor, crying, why me? Nelson had nothing left to live for. He had to run away. A few days later, Nelson was ready to run away. He had packed his things, if any. He had waited until nightfall so that nobody would see him. He decided that he would head to the church to pray for his papa and little sister, Evie. Nelson started his long trek across the open field. It was very tiring, and he wanted to stop and fall asleep, but he felt it was his duty. He felt weaker with every step. He was nearing the town. He could feel it. He had to stop. Nelson collapsed to the ground. He had to keep going. He started crawling. Somebody might have seen him. Nelson tried to crawl faster. He could see the church, five meters away. For every inch he overcame, a tear slithered down his cheeks. Four meters, three. Somebody grabbed Nelson by the arms. No, he screamed. He was so close. Now his family's spirits would not be put to rest. Nelson felt himself getting thrown into a dungeon. The last thing he saw before complete darkness was a black bump coming out of his knee. Nelson was never seen again. The Merchant of Colmar. The bubonic plague has been spreading rapidly. Thousands of people are dying. Luckily, none of us have gotten the bubonic plague yet, Donald told the family of five. Donald was 14 years of age, the oldest of the children. The next day, Donald regretted what he had said the day before. Tia, Donald's mom, got black spots on her skin. Harry's Harry, Donald's dad, had to travel to get wool products from England to support his family. Together, Harry and Tia taught Donald, Winifred, and Leo how to run the shop, in which they sold a variety of luxury goods such as wool clothing and spices. The day before Harry was going to leave, Winifred realized that their most valuable spice had vanished. Someone must have stolen it from us. They must have done it while we were sleeping. I can't believe somebody would do that, exclaimed Leo, the youngest of the children, at age seven. Donald, Winifred, and Leo went looking for the spice. Harry stayed behind to care for Tia since she had not, since she could not go searching because she was getting sicker and sicker. It has been hours and we have not found it. I say we give up, Donald said, panting. That night, Harry told the whole family, I have to delay my trip by three days so I can teach you kids how to run the, sh the shop. The next day, Harry continued teaching Donald, 14, Winifred, 11, and Leo, 7, Donald, you're going to be watching and managing Leo and Winifred, Harry told Donald. Winifred, you're going to be giving the products to the customer. Leo, you'll be collecting the money from the buyer. Now, I think this will be enough products to be able to eat, Harry told the children. If 
she was treated well, then we probably would only have one more day with your mom. Harry whispered. The day before Harry was going to leave, as they expected, Tia passed away. Although, although the kids were very sad, Harry told them they had to continue to learn. Every day, a little bit after midday, you are going to buy food from other merchants. This is how you are going to get your food. How will we cook the food? Squawked Winifred. Donald, I will cook the food and I will, and feed it to them. I am even okay for Winifred to help. Harry told the children, I can't help. I want to. Please, pretty please. Leo cried. No, you cannot help, Leo. You are seven years old. You are too young to deal with fire, Harry explained. We will keep Leo safe, Donald assured. The next morning, the three children got up just as the sun did and said goodbye to their dad. We will miss you, Dad, Donald screamed. I will miss you too, Harry screamed back. I will see you in two months, Winifred yelled. I hope it will only be one month. Bye. Love you, Harry said as he started to leave. Harry is going to England to buy lots of wool on his horse named Brookland. After he gets back, he is going to hire a person that will make the wool into clothes. Then, then they can sell the clothes. Harry will be traveling from Colmar, France, to a farm in England that sells wool. While Harry is while Harry's traveling, the kids are selling goods. The first night, the kids get to eat and sleep well. By the tenth day, Harry had reached the edge of France by the sea and needed a ride. Thankfully, there was a boat system just started five years ago, so nobody could or so anybody could get across. As he traveled, though, he thought about his kids. And Colmar, Winifred, Donald, and Leo are thinking about their dad. They all hope their dad is safe traveling. Harry hopes that they have all gotten food every day. None of them have caught the plague. It is the 20th day now, and, and a black spot just appeared on Leo's arm. Harry had gotten a wool and is headed back to the children. Leo had has had the plague for three days, and Winifred had just gotten a black spot on her leg. Leo died, and, Winif and Don Donald had been doing all the work for the shop. We all love you, Leo, Donald said, crying. You will be remembered, said Winifred. You will be remembered too, Don Winifred, Donald told Winifred. I'm home, Harry exclaimed. Harry has been gone for one month and two days. Where are you, Leo and Winifred? Harry asked. As Harry asked Donald. Unfortunately, they got the plague and died, Donald told Harry. Oh, Donald, I am de devastated. I was gone too long. Where did you put them? Harry asked Donald. I just buried buried them outside, Donald said sadly. I will miss them forever, Harry said while crying. It will be hard without them here to help us, and without Mom too, said Donald. At least we have each other. I will have I will never leave you again, explained Harry while hugging Donald. The Courageous Girl Runaway On a windy fall day in November 1347, I knew that I had to run away. Most of my family had come down with the plague that some called Black Death. I couldn't risk getting sick, and I definitely wasn't ready to die. I was only 15 years old. I tried to be brave and do the right thing to protect my three-year-old sister, Daisy, so we ran away from my manor. While I knew my parents would not agree with my decision, I went for it. I knew that running away would give me and Daisy a better life in the long run and that if we stayed, we could both end up dying. And if we didn't die from the plague, we would have to spend the rest of our lives as serfs. No one wanted to be a serf, but we were born into a serf family, and we had no way out of it if we stayed. 
I began working as full-time as a surf when I was 13. I worked six days per week, and I only got Sundays off. I had to cook, clean, garden, and make clothes for my Lord and his family. I was very excited to leave this life behind and start a new life somewhere else. On the night we ran away, I took Daisy by the hand and started our trip through the pitch-black forest near the manor. I silently prayed that our Lord Robert wouldn't catch us. Shh, I whispered to Daisy. We need to be extra quiet. Ride on my back until we get further into the forest so you don't have to walk very far. Okay, Daisy muttered sleepily. We walked for what seemed to be a million years. At one point, I looked up and saw a candle in front of us. I saw a dark shadow on a nearby tree of a bow and an arrow, and something was about to be shot. Ah, I screamed. Who goes there, our young man asked. Agnes and Daisy Hill. Sir, I'm sorry that we've intruded on your hunting. Can you please help us? I think we're lost. Of course I can. I'm Bennett Bailey. I'm 18. I'm a merchant at Bailey's family meat shop down the road from here. I'm happy to help. Follow me to my house for the night. I think Bennett and me walked a little while longer and soon arrived, arrived at his house. He gave me a quick tour of the small house, and as we approached the bedroom, he pointed to the picture. This is a drawing of me and my parents before they died. He took a deep breath and explained to me that his father, his father's store a year ago when he died. I tried to keep it running as best as I can. I'm so sorry. I was about to tell him about my family, and then I saw it. There was a purplish bump on my sister's back. Oh no, this can't be happening, she pointed to her sister. She knew that she had gotten the Black Death. There was no question. That night, Daisy stayed in Bennett's shed because the plague could be so contagious. We couldn't risk getting sick, too. The next morning, when I woke up and started to take my sister's slice of bread, I walked outside, and the shed had been all bricked up all around. This is what happened to homes of people suffering from the plague. In them, I ran to the shed and called for Daisy. There was no reply. I was very sad to have lost my baby sister. I sat on the rock outside of the shed, crying from what seemed to be an eternity. I was devastated because of what happened to Daisy, but I knew that there was nothing I could have done to have stopped it. I heard footsteps near me as I sat crying. It was Bennett. What will you do now? He asked. I would, I could come help you at your shop, I said. I would like that. I could use some help. It took two weeks for me to feel like myself again. I missed Daisy, my three-year-old sister and best friend. I started working for Bennett at his shop. I cleaned and helped sell meat that Bennett either hunted or traded for. Sometimes I struggled because Bennett would let his, would leave town to trade and I would get so busy. I learned how hard it must have been for him since his parents had been gone. I was really missing my family, but now Bennett and I had each other, and I would do anything for him, just like he had helped me. A few months later, when Bennett returned from one of his trading trips, he got his horse and reached into his pocket. He gave me a charm that he had found at his shop while he was away. He asked me to marry him. I had, it had been a rough couple of months, but I knew that a new life with Bennett was starting. <laughs> Elizabeth's journey. Elizabeth wiped away her tears. This curse from God had taken so much from her, and now it took her father. Elizabeth knelt to look at his grave. Mary, her sister, knelt beside her and started crying again. I miss him already, Mary said. Me too, Elizabeth replied. After a while, after a while the sisters got up and walked back to their house. It was a cold and rainy day, which matched their feelings perfectly.
When they were home, Elizabeth went to her corner and pulled out a small box. Inside were little trinkets and memories of her parents. Tears streaked her face as she remembered her mother and the song she used to sing to her. Her mother was so sweet and caring. She was the one who had taught Elizabeth and Mary how to read. Within the box, Elizabeth found a letter she had never seen before. Her eyes went wide as she read it. Mary, father left his horse and armor to me, Elizabeth exclaimed. What? Let me see that, Mary said, taking the letter from her. Oh my goodness, it's true. Why on earth would he do that, Mary said. I think he wants me to be a knight, just like him, Elizabeth almost screamed with excitement. She had been dreaming about being a knight ever since she was a little girl. This was finally her chance. Mary, I have to do it. Think of all the money I could make, all the adventure I could have, Elizabeth said, jumping with excitement. We could use some more, but it's far too dangerous. And besides, you know that ladies aren't knights. My final answer is no, Mary said. But no, Mary interrupted. Fine, I won't be a knight. Elizabeth lied. But the next day, Elizabeth was going to sign up as a squire. Before dawn, Elizabeth rushed out of the house and into town. She wanted to sign up as soon as she could. When Elizabeth was there, she rushed up to the table of knights and told them she wanted to be a squire. They all laughed at her and told her to go home. Why does nobody think that I can be a knight? Elizabeth pressed on, trying to persuade them to let her be a squire. Eventually, she gave up and walked back to her house with her head hung low. Elizabeth crept around the back of of the house in hopes that Mary in hopes of Mary not seeing her. Behind the house, she saw her father's horse and armor. She decided that it might cheer her up to try it on. Almost half an hour later, Elizabeth finally finished layering the chainmail and armor. The, she almost fell over because of the immense weight. Okay, maybe I should try getting on the horse now. Elizabeth got on the horse and tried to gallop like her father had taught her. The horse did not appreciate the new rider and just sat there. Come on, let's go, Elizabeth demanded. The horse grunted and began to walk. All that day, she acted as if she were were a knight on her horse. She even tried galloping and using her bow. Elizabeth fell into the mud many times, but she got right back up and kept going. Knock, knock, knock. She turned around to see the same three knights who had left at her that morning. Elizabeth was shocked. We need you, one knight said. Really? Elizabeth exclaimed. On one condition. If you do well in the next battle, you will be chosen as a squire. We normally don't take ladies, but because this curse has taken so many, we'll take you, another knight said. Deal. Once the next battle, Elizabeth said without thinking. She felt like she might explode with happiness. Two weeks, a knight said. Then they were gone just as quickly as they had come. Elizabeth trained very hard from dawn to dusk for the next two weeks. Mary found out and was not too pleased, but let her carry on anyways. She was extremely tired and had so many bruises and blisters she couldn't count. Finally, the day arrived when they were supposed to go to battle. They marched for miles and miles until they finally reached the city. The front line ran in with Elizabeth just behind them. Then she found her first target, pulled out her bow, and shot. The arrow took what felt like years to finally hit the man. Elizabeth felt a bit of remorse, but she knew she had to keep on going. By the end of the battle, Elizabeth had done very well. The other knights congratulated her as they marched home. She was full of pride and knew they had to make her a squire now. Elizabeth had also collected a few coins, which she knew would make Mary happy. When they were home, Mary ran and gave her sister the biggest hug. I missed you so much, Mary said. I missed you more, Elizabeth replied with a smile.
The next day was a huge celebration. Many people gathered to congratulate Victory and New Squire Chief. There was music, food, and dancing. Elizabeth squeezed Mary's hand as they walked into town. They headed straight for the castle and accepted many compliments on the way. This is it. I'm becoming a squire. Elizabeth took a knee and they started the ceremony. The running night. It was late at night at our camp when I suddenly awoke. King Richard I had led us all throughout yesterday morning until we stationed ourselves here, a good 50 or so miles away from Arsif. We were to arrive at Arsif the next morning around 9 a.m. I woke in terror of what could happen in tomorrow's battle. Finn, what is the meaning of this? Sir Leonard exclaimed under his breath. Why are you awake? Oh, hi, my lord, I said. Sorry, I woke up suddenly. I don't know why. Well, that's not something to be ashamed of, Sir Leonard said back. His tone settled a little. Just get some sleep, as you know of the battle that's sure to happen tomorrow. Next morning, we were up at the crack of dawn. I was assisting Sir Leonard with his chainmail and many metal plates of armor. Then we were off. We marched onward for at least a couple of hours. Then I started to grow tired of all the marching and riding my horse. We were mainly subjected to hit-and-run attacks that were, start to, that were to start happening around 9 a.m. These consisted of horse archers, horse archers, such as Sir Leonard and I, dashing forward, firing, and immediately retreating. Although these initial efforts weren't having our desired effect, my lord hit a perfect shot straight into one of the men of Saladin's 2,000-man army's chest. One down, Sir Leonard shouted, about 25,000 more to go. Our army began to move in a tight formation with me, Sir Leonard, and the rest of the infantry on the front lines protecting heavy cavalry and baggage train, which was a brilliant idea. But suddenly, Saladin's army, the Ayyubids, began attacking our flanks with the pattern of harassing raids. If he succeeded in taking out all of our flanks and breaking up our formation, then his cavalry could easily just sweep in for the kill. My lord, my lord, I shouted with fright, what are we supposed to do? But all Sir Leonard did was blatantly ignore me and march onward into battle. We slowly continued moving south as the battle continued, and near the town of Arsif, just north of Jaffa, Saladin's army elected to make a stand. They had a huge widespread formation spreading from the forest of Arsif to a series of large hills in the south. As we were around six miles away from Arsif, King Richard ordered everyone to prepare for battle again and resume our tight defensive stance. I feel like this is really isn't looking too good, I said nervously to Sir Leonard, and again I was clearly being ignored. By mid-afternoon, the lead elements of our army had entered Arsif. At the end of the column, we were violently attacked by the Ayyubid spearmen and crossbows, and then the same pattern of attacks continued to happen. All it was was attack, charge, defend, and so on. Until around midday, the Ayyubid's horse archers all, for whatever reason, got off their horses. Then they all steadied their arrows, and then, Fire! Someone shouted from the enemy army. Then a hail of raining arrows came down on us, and sadly, Sir Leonard was pierced right through his helmet with an arrow. No, I shouted, my lord, my lord, are you all right? And although there was no, there was once again no answer, I don't think I was being ignored anymore. I'll keep fighting for you, sir, I whispered to myself, and then on we went. Without a second thought, I charged into battle. We kept fighting even as it started to grow late, and then suddenly the remainder of Saladin's army had fled the battlefield. We had won. We couldn't appreciate the moment for very long, though. 
but that was okay because we looted and raided the Ayyubids' camp of all their goods and valuables. Then we immediately started the march toward Jerusalem. Thank you, my lord, I said quietly, too quietly for anybody else to hear. Thank you. As I looked back at the battlefield one last time, then we rode off with the rest of the troops. Near death. Hello, my name is Edward A. Theodore. I lived in England with my family. I was training as an apprentice to become a blacksmith. I had a good enough life. My father was a serf on a manor, but one day he realized that he was not going to stay there. So that night, he ran away and found a village that he could stay in. That is where I now live. It was an okay place, but I'd always kind of wished for some sort of adventure. Then, the Crusades began. I then realized that adventure was not what I wanted. My father was the one who told me. He also said that I was going to join them in the army. What? I said quietly. You heard what I said. You'll be a squire in the army. To take back the Holy Land, my father said, almost harshly. I can't, I yelled. Why not? He said more like a command than a question. I, I, I was going to be a blacksmith, I cried. I understand, he said, calling me. But you could make a difference. You leave tomorrow. And so I did. That was the moment when my life changed. I was sent the next day to be the squire of a knight. As soon as I arrived, I was sent to a knight who said only that his name was Thomas and that I was to be trained. And right he was, because I was training right after that. Trained in longbow shooting, horse riding, jousting, and swordplay. I wasn't very good at it, but I kept training. After a few weeks of vigorous, vigorous training, we received information that we were going to be laying siege to a castle. So we readied our horses and headed out to the castle in France. On a horse. Four and a half weeks. When we finally arrived, people started setting up camps. Shouldn't we be attacking? I said. No, said Thomas. We usually only attack if we are being attacked. So, we waited. We waited until we ran out of food. They ran out of food, or one of us attacked. Then, out of the blue, an arrow zipped one inch to the left of my head. Soon after, another, and another, and another, until there was a wave of arrows raining from the wall. We ducked behind cover, but some couldn't. We watched arrows shoot into them quicker than lightning, then watched them drop lifelessly to the ground. Something inside me snapped that day. I was furious and terrified. I wanted to destroy every last one of them, but I knew that I would be no different from the people who died if I did that. I thought I saw an opening, for a ran and so I ran for it. Then, I felt something cold when I ran. In my right chest, I saw an arrow. I couldn't move. I fell onto my knees, then to my side. Then I passed out for I don't know how long. I woke in my house with my family standing over me. Hello, son, my father said. Did we win? I said quietly. You're back, so to me, we won. What about Thomas? I said a little louder. He didn't make it back, he said solemnly. No, he, he must have stormed the castle, I yelled. What about England? Don't worry, someone else will. What? I said timidly. You're not the only one who wants to take down the castle, he said. Let it rest. Death by Crusade. Sir, we are losing badly, Adrian exclaimed. 
This was the point that he had been trying to make for the last few hours. The king hadn't been listening. The king hated when people said something that was true but was against his opinion. He was very stubborn. I don't care, but we must go through with this. Adrian had angered him this time, that's for sure. The king's face was bright crimson, and he looked as though steam would come out of his ears any second. Fine, do it your way. Then Adrian walked out. He always thought the king made mediocre to terrible decisions, but now he had secured a spot on the list of idiotic people in Adrian's mind. So stupid, Adrian kept muttering under his breath. For the last few nights, the Muslims had been making many raids on his camp. He expected no different tonight. To make matters worse, supply ports had been blocked off, and they were down to their last few men. 1,562 to be exact. That was one of many reasons Adrian thought they should needed to go back to Europe. A day later, the king called 12 nobles into his tent. Adrian was among them. Then he explained the battle plan. A few hundred men will go to the front of the city and start burning the wall. Adrian, you will lead them. The rest of the men will go to the back, and while they are distracted, this plan amused Adrian. We will attack. Meet me in your position tomorrow with your troops when the sun is the highest point in the sky, the king finished. The next day, Adrian was in position in the, at the wall with his horse, full of ar- in, fu- with, in full armor. He had the people assigned to him with him, and, and he heard trumpets. That was his cue. He and his troops immediately started lighting the wall, but before they could start, they were besieged by arrows. The Muslims had known that they were coming. Adrian's horse was shot down. Crap! Adrian ex- exclaimed, and he looked in horror at his horse. It was all bloody. He was a knight stranded on the battlefield. He started to run away, afraid. Then a shrilling pain came to him in his lower back. He started to feel lots of blood flowing to the spot the arrow hit him. He felt a deep pain in himself. He never thought he would be shot by an arrow, but here he was. He started to become nauseous and weary. Then when he saw all the limp bodies lying around him, he tried to get up, but was shot down by two more arrows, each hit behind his knees. Suddenly, he passed out. When he awoke, the first thing he noticed he noticed was that he had no legs. This led him to let out a blood-curdling scream. Soon afterwards, he noticed his surroundings. Many other men on poles just like this. Most of them were in as bad shape as he was, if not worse. Then he realized what he was about what was about to happen. In a few seconds, he was going to be shot to death by arrows with a long, with the other troops. Then he heard the word. Fire! the Muslim king roared. Then Adrian closed his eyes and felt an indescribable pain. Then nothing. A year later, when Adrian hadn't returned home and his family knew he had died, they went into a period of deep mourning, but by the same time next year, they had restarted their daily lives. Attack of Demieta It was a cold November morning in Holland 1217. As I woke up, I heard the church bells ringing to call a meeting for all noblemen. We meet in the church. 
I've called you here for the news of the next crusade, Count William said. The Holy Roman Empire has agreed that now is the time for us to send another crusade to the Holy Land. A murmur went through the room. Then that's what shall be done, one of the nobles spoke out. When God calls for another battle, we'll follow his commands. Fine, let's have a vote if Holland's to participate in this crusade. Nearly everybody's hand went up. All right, it's settled then. We leave in February. I spend the next three months gathering my weapons, armor, and men. These are rather easy tasks, as all my men live on my land, so they're relatively close. I keep all the weapons in a hut that my servants can fetch for me. On the day we leave, I pack bags of food, armor, and weapon and load them onto a trolley. We travel as a group for the long and dangerous journey. Along with our armies, which all of us and our serfs added up to nearly thousands, we took the long trips by foot and horseback. My horse, Vanderbilt, was quite old, but he remained steady, and I had faith in him, for he had led me to battle on many other occasions. We hiked around the Ardennes Mountains for two weeks before we reached the Mediterranean at the coast of Italy. From there, we got to a fleet of ships and were about to sail east towards Damietta. As the army of Christians boarded the ship, I thought to myself that I knew this was my last chance to abandon if I wished. This voyage, let alone the battle, could cost me my life. I had no chance to leave, and I had one chance to leave, and that was now. But I didn't. But I didn't. I wasn't to be remembered as a coward. I was going to fight for my people's right to this land if it costed me my life. The trip by sea took another three weeks. Food was scarce, and we lost some men to disease. Although many of us were weakened, we stayed strong enough through rationing and praying. Our ships were barely large enough to fit all of our men and horses into. By the time we reached the coast of Damietta, we had <clears throat> nearly lost half of our men to starvation and disease. We docked and set up camp at night as the men set up tents, fire, and food and water stands. Many other were sent out to bring back what wild food they could find. We must get some rest, Count William addressed us. We don't know what will come in the weeks ahead. Although we all knew it was coming, the Muslims were keeping a close eye on us. They were ready for any attempt of an attack. After all, they were fortified there, and even if they didn't know, I'm sure they would still beat us with all of their equipment and them. We're doomed, I thought. And that was when we made the greatest mistake ever. I went to sleep and woke up to the sound of hammering and men in a hurry. Get up, get up. It was a fellow Holland Knight named Charles. What is it? I asked groggily as I pulled on my clothes. They're building some type of war machine. I could see a wooden contraption in the distance. It resembled a catapult. I recognize that. It's a trebuchet. I've heard stories. All right, enough talking. We need to get ready for battle. I finished dressing and throwing on the top layer of armor. I then saddled up and rode off with the other crusaders towards the Muslims and their contraption. They were formed in sort of a blob as we rode at them. They were busily scrambling around trying to build their weapon, but as long as we were pushing them, they would have to retreat. I could see the Egyptian sand being kicked up behind Vanderbilt's hooves. His dark hair and mane shimmered in the bright morning sun. Behind me were all the knights and slaves who were also sent to scare away the builders and fighters. Altogether, we formed a wall of horses, metal, and spears. Sure enough, before we even got to the weapon, the enemy was already fleeing back to their tower and fortress. We had scared them away with ease, and now we had their food, tools, and many other resources. We would be able to survive long enough to find a sustainable way to get the resources that we would need later. A few months later, we had enough food to last us the winter and to power us enough if we needed to protect from any ambush or anything else. 
By the next March, we have almost created a small town, and we were healthy enough to attack. We were very happy with the position we were in the war, maybe a little too happy. We can't just wait here forever, I said to a group of the top knights, especially with that war machine just waiting to be taken back by them. It's more complicated than that, Arthur, Charles told me. It's time to fight, someone spoke out. A murmur of agreement went through the tent. Fine, we'll fight tomorrow. I woke up myself today and threw my armor and a clothing immediately. As I met up with the rest of the crusaders, I realized that this could be it. This was the largest battle I'd ever faced before, and it could be my last. I just pushed these thoughts out of my mind and thought about what would happen if we won. I'll go straight to heaven, I thought. If we win, I'll get my family over here and we'll live in peace forever. I was interrupted by the scream of a man in the distance. I looked in his direction, only to see him getting trampled by the hundreds of Muslims on horseback. They had expected us. It was an ambush. I quickly saddled up and joined the others to defend us. I prepared to ride into the walls of spheres and watched as one by one we lost more and more men until there were only about a hundred of us left. With all my might, I pushed forward and disarmed three of them and pushed them off their horses, only to find another wave was coming for me. I saw my family in my head. I saw the little hut that I grew up in. I saw my daughter, my son, and my wife, and then I saw darkness. As I rode straight into the army, I breathed my last full breath of the bitter Egypt air and watched Vanderbilt rear back to defend me, but it was no chance, and I faced death. How I Survived the Black Death I was born in 1333 in a wonderful place called Europe. I had such a happy life with my mother, father, and my best friend, Hillary. I got stuck with a name Beverly Atkins only because it was a family name. Well, then I got it from Grandma, and then it was passed down to me. There are only some people who just go with it. I'm now 14 years old with a six-year-old brother, Bennett, and I'm still living a happy life. Father was going to be a knight, but wasn't fit to be a crusader, and then last stuff is being served. Women search do chores such as cooking, cleaning, and looking after children. While men search do labor on the Lord's domain for two or three days each week in exchange for a place to live. Also, search to most of the war out of the whole village. I came home one day from doing my chores like normal search do. I went inside and saw my mother's face. Her face looked very, very worried. Not the type of worried face you make when a child hates himself. It's the type of worried face if someone died or when something bad happened. My mother started off. Beverly, something dreadful has happened, and I'm sorry I didn't tell you sooner. I need you to understand the situation today, please. Mother, you're scaring me. No, Bev, and I'm extremely sorry. I'm not trying to at all. Well then, Mother, what is it? What happened that was so horrific? You couldn't tell me sooner. I have some different symptoms. I think I've gotten off a disease that might eventually lead to death. No, no, this can't be happening to me. I started belting out crying. But if you have to, you have to listen. I'm so, so, so sorry. I didn't tell you sooner. I wanted to, but I just couldn't get at me. I'm begging you, please forgive me. My mother had said quietly, so my brother didn't hear me. It was kind of understandable. Even though I would have liked to have known sooner, I had mother back. After my conversation with my mother, she started to go. I wanted to help her. I really wanted to, but I just couldn't. I didn't know how, not even in the least. Mother, what do you mean? I'll do anything for you. Just tell me. My mother started me. I'm sorry to say, but I don't even know what the disease is called. Neither did the doctors. I'm afraid there's nothing we can do. There has to be something, I said. I started to cry, not just a little. I was drenched in tears. All because of what I had just heard. Oh, good father, he'll know what to do. I had said frightened. As I was leaving the room, 
I had gone to the room my father was in so I could talk to him about what mother was going through. He was gone all morning talking to the doctors and people who wouldn't who would know what the disease was. So mother was not the first one to get it. Other people had gotten it earlier in the morning. They had spread it throughout the village. On father's way home from the doctors, he saw two other people who had caught the disease. He went up to talk to them and told me that the doctors had told them they were already fighting the last stages in the morning. The stages of the disease called for first pain, fever, and boils. Second, swollen lymph nodes and blotches all over the skin. Lastly, he vomited blood, and within three days of doing so, you would die. I started to scream, what will happen to mother? Will she stay alive? I need to know. Bev, please calm down. What will happen? Please tell me. The father shook his head as I'm quiet. I'm not sure. Only a couple survived. We need to get her whatever she needs and keep her alive. I told my father quietly so my mother didn't hear me. After the talk with father, I was extremely worried about mother and what might happen to her. Father came into my room holding a piece of paper from this morning, and it said the disease was called the bubonic plague, but some people called it the black death. It came from it came from a boat. The boat had rats on it, and the rats had fleas on them. The fleas on the rats had started the disease, and the people on the boat were the first ones to go. Some of the deadliest diseases, and that's why so little survive, and millions die. I'll help you no matter what. I promise. Just tell me what you need, and I'll get it for you. I told my mother. She muttered softly. I know. I know. I don't know what I would do without your wonderful help. Don't know what I would do without you, mother. What I didn't know is that would be my last time talking to her. I woke up the next morning with father screaming in my ear, not knowing what he was saying because I was so tired. Come quick, come quick, it's mother. I'm coming, I screamed back at him. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. How could this have happened? She was gone. My mother was gone. I went to my room and I started to cry. And not the type of cry when you scratch yourself. It was the type of cry when you break a bone. The type of cry is full and sobbing. I just couldn't help it. Why me? Why not someone else? Why, 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 why? I started screaming and yelling and crying. I didn't know what to do, not even a little lost bit. Today was the day I died inside. Nothing left at all. There was no hope whatsoever left inside of me. Nothing. I got to comfort my brother Bennett, but he wasn't in this room. Nowhere to be found. He's gone. I can't find him anywhere. Who was it? Who's gone? Bennett. He ran away after he heard the news. I continued to tell father that Bennett might have run away because he didn't know what to do. Since he didn't know what to do, he ran away to be free. Because they've searched him away for more than a year, and in one day, then they officially come free. We need to find him. I can't manage to lose two people one day. Father uttered back. As weeks and weeks went by, it got a little bit, but we still haven't found Bennett yet. Father and I went to lots of different shops, houses, and villages. And then finally, I went to the last village we lived in, the one where Hillary lived. Hillary was my best friend as a kid. We used to make food and so close together with our mothers. Then Hillary moved to a different village and we slowly grew apart. Father and I went up to her door and knocked until someone came outside. Hillary's mother was the one who opened the door. She looked very surprised to see who it was. Bennett peeked his head out from behind the door and said, Father and I both great big cubs. Bennett was still very fond of Hillary, so that's probably why he went there to hide. In the end, nothing worked out for any of us. Bennett and father have both died from the disease. I, sur- I survived the disease along with Hillary and four other villagers I didn't know. Six, all six of us were still very sick and very weak, but we still managed to survive one of the deadliest diseases in history. He should be a monk, Mom yelled. No, he has to be a doctor, Dad yelled back. I walked out of the dining hall. I was 
as I was bored with this conversation. They've had this conversation many times before because I am almost nine, and when boys are nine, they get to start their apprenticeship. My dad wants me to be a doctor, and I want to also, but my mom wants me to be a monk. Ugh, I don't want to sit in a temple and pray all day. That is so boring. I want to do big things that help people. My name is David Edward Wellington. I have brown hair, big brown eyes, and I'm very skinny. My dad is Sir Wellington, but everyone just calls him Sir Wells, and he looks just like me. We both are of royal blood, and that is why we have long names. As I turned the corner, I almost ran into my dad's best friend, Sir Ian. I especially like Sir Ian because he treats me like an adult. How are you doing today, fine sir, Ian said in his most formal voice. Simply splendid, and you, noble gentleman, I joked back. Fine, fine, and where are your parents? In the dining hall. I waited outside as Sir Ian walked inside and talked to my parents. I wondered why Ian was here, for he only comes when he needs something. Why else make the two-week journey? So it surprised me when my parents called me back into the dining hall. David, can you come back in here, Mom asked. Yes, I replied as I walked into the hall. You're going to be an apprentice for Ian's private doctor, Mom said. I was so excited, I quickly excused myself before I ran to my room to help the servants with the packing. Faster! Come on, you need to go faster. I need to start my apprenticeship. Don't you know, I'm going to be a doctor, I said proudly. I was so loud, I didn't hear the last part of the conversation. Why didn't you tell him about the Black Death, Isabel? No need to scare the boy, Ian. When we finally got into Sir Ian's manor after the long journey, I was surprised that instead of resting for the first day, he sent me straight to his private doctor without another word. I was so tired because we woke up two hours before sunrise and we still arrived at the manor at noon. But that didn't diminish my excitement to start working as a doctor. As soon as I walked in the door of the doctor's office, the doctor, who later introduced himself as Philip, started giving me orders. The next few hours were a blur of emptying chamber pots, cleaning blood bowls, and sharpening knives, and something that's called a scalpel. I think it's just a fancy way of saying small, sharp knife. At the end of the day, he sat me down across from him and told me about what the Black Death is, what it did to a person, and what the signs of having it was. He also told me about the balance of the body in the four biles. He told me that if the biles are out of balance, that we must bleed the patients to put the biles back. He showed me a uniform that he said will keep away the Black Death. He told me about a small province on the corner of the property that will be my home for the next couple of years. He told me that behind my house is a garden with a ton of super smelly herbs. He said for the first couple days, all the smells are so overwhelming, but after a while, it won't bother me anymore. And every day, I have to get dressed in my uniform and go outside and fill my mask with herbs to block out the bad air. After talking about this for several hours, he finally brought me to my house for the next several years. That would be my house for the next several years. It was a nice, quaint little cottage with one room surrounded by a huge, stinky garden that you smell before you even see it. I was so tired that after Philip left, I jumped straight into my bed and fell asleep immediately. The next three years go like this. 
I wake up, I get dressed, I go outside, I fill my mask with herbs, and then go to Philip's office and sharpen the knives and scalpels. Then I clean the bubbles, empty the chamber pots, and then do what the doctor asks of me for the rest of the day. My only break is when the doctor has to leave for several days. By this time, I'm 12 years old and I've gained lots of muscle. Philip noted that one day and decided to bring me with him on one of his trips with him. I was so excited, I was on my way to being a real doctor. But when I saw but what I saw when we walked into the manor was disgusting. Uh, pee and poo in the corners and vomit in piles on the ground. And Philip just walked around them like everything was perfectly fine. I was so glad we had on our masks and couldn't smell the excrement on the floor. He walked over to the bed with a sickly woman lying in it so deep into the covers I couldn't see her until now. The woman looked over at the doctor and screamed, I know you. You are a devil spawn. When you last came and stole my blood, I almost died. Leave me alone. I tried to calm the woman down, but it was no use. Finally, Philip ordered me to hold the woman down as he bled the woman. She put up a fight, but eventually I won, as I was a young, strong male, and she was a frail old woman. As I held her down, I could feel the fight drain out of her with the blood into the bowl. The entire ride back, I couldn't stop thinking about what the woman had said. I tried to bring it up with Philip, but he didn't care and only wanted to sleep. When we got back, it was really late, and I was very tired. I couldn't fall asleep. I could still hear the old lady in my head. Another year passed, just like the first three, but now he takes me with him to go see the patients in their manners. I got up that mo- I got up that morning in a bad mood, but still, I did my normal morning routine. I got dressed, I took my mask outside, and filled it with herbs, and then I went to Philip's office. But today, as I was filling up my mask, a boy ran to me. Hello, Dr. Welling, the boy said. Get on with it, boy, I interrupted. Sir, your parents have died. They were treated by the doctor in their town, Elliot, uh, and they were buried in a grave on the outskirts of their property. It was with these words that he turned and left. It didn't matter much to me. I could barely remember what they looked like, but I laid out a rose for mom and some dill weed for my dad, and I went to start the day. I was happy to get home that evening, for there was a sore under my arm, and I wished to take off my uniform. But as I did so, my greatest fear happened. I had a lump. Not just any lump, but the lump I spent my life trying to fight. The lump that signaled the Black Death. I crumpled into my bed and fell asleep without any dinner. My last thought as I drifted off was, I'm joining my parents. As I drifted in and out of sleep, For what I thought was my last days on this earth, I thought a lot about my family, Dr. Philip, and the treatments that we gave people, and mostly how I would not be bled, even though that that was a useless thought, as no one came to check on me. I was surprised when instead of getting worse, I was getting better. I was so happy when I was able to go out on the eighth day and take the little money I'd saved and buy bread. I hadn't realized how hungry I was until that day. I practically devoured the thing. When I got back home, I started to fire and burned the uniform and watched the smoke disappear into the sky. After a while, I walked inside and started writing the story on paper that I'd saved for my journey here.
The date was March 1st, 1351, four years after all this had started. It's the day, the day I finally became a knight. Hi, I'm, I am Alan. I had become a squire years ago, and I am finally becoming a knight. The ceremony would be starting soon. I walked out ready to begin the ceremony. I kneeled before the king. He placed a sword on my left shoulder, then my right. I then stood up, and the king gave me my rank. I was arranged at a temple in Marshall. The next day, we went out on our horses to fight the Muslims. We rode until sunset when we saw Muslim soldiers. We stopped all our nice, then we charged into battle on our horses. We clashed with the Muslims, hitting them with our swords. I had tons and tons of detail. A Muslim hit my horse. It screamed and knocked me off. I hit the ground hard. I tried getting up, but my army was too heavy. Ah, a Muslim soldier cried. He charged toward me with a sword. I quickly grabbed my sword, blocked his first strike. I had to keep walking strikes until I had a chance to hit him. I cut him in the chest. He cried out in pain. He then hit the ground. A fellow knight then helped me up. The battle lasted for a while until eventually the Muslims retreated. We then went back to home to Jerusalem to discover something awful. There was a disease killing lots of people. It's called the plague. It has already killed lots of people, a doctor said. Have you found a cure yet, I asked. No, he said. What can we do, I asked. Just stay away from people that have the plague, he said. I went into town to get some food because I was hungry. I saw some people that had the plague. I quickly avoided them when I saw them. I bought an apple and then quickly started my way back home. I was about halfway there when I coughed and kept coughing. I then couldn't stop coughing. I realized something awful and rushed over to the doctor's place and knocked on his door. The nurse answered the door. I need to see the doctor, I said. You let me in. The doctor is in his office, he said. I rushed over to the office door and knocked. Come in, he said. I opened the door and rushed in, and like before, I couldn't stop coughing. Doctor, I think I might have a plague. What are your symptoms, he asked. As you have seen, I've been coughing a lot, I said. Then the doctor said, I'm sorry, but I think you have a plague. Surf's Quest to Outermere. Chapter 1. England. 1153. As I woke up to the sun, I thought today would be different. Me and my sister Mary were, are serfs on a large home in the country. We work all day and aren't paid anything. We are saves, slaves owned by the land. We cannot be sold, but we can run away or pay the owner for freedom. The, owners, the owner of the manor's name is Tristan, but he insists we call him Lord Tristan. I went to gather some vegetables in the garden for a large dinner feast at midday. Lord Tristan has invited over great and famous knights to eat. We had been preparing bread and other things to eat. Mary had already been cooking lamb when I came back in. When the Lord and the knights were eating, a knight that had the name of Sir John asked me a question. Lord, what's your name? It took me a second to realize that he was talking to me. 
Huh? Oh, John, sir. Ha, huh, that is also my name. I laughed. Later that evening, Sir John pulled me aside once again. Sir, I asked him, do you wish for more bread to take on your trip next morning? Now that I think of it, I will accept your offer, but that is not why I am talking to you. I have been talking with your lord, and we agree. Will you be my squire? Chapter 2 This is all a shock for me. I was wondering why anyone would want me to be anything besides a serf. I sputter out the words, I, I don't know, out of my mouth, but I don't think he understands. Why don't you why didn't you sleep on it? Okay, I sputtered out again. When I woke up the next morning, I had concluded that I would go on the condition of Mary's approval. No, Mary said harshly when I asked her about Sir, Sir John. Why not? I returned. He is a good and noble man. It would benefit to us if I went. Oh yeah, how would that benefit me? I could use the money I earned to free you. Really? Mary lowered her voice into a calm tone. You do that for me? Of course, I said. Then Mary paused. Fine. Well, I leave today, so I guess this is goodbye. We embraced, and I went off to tell Sir John's Lord Tristan the news. Chapter 3 Lad, get off your horse and we get on your horse, and we will go. My horse? I asked Sir John. Oh, yes, I forgot to tell you, Sir John exclaimed. As he said that, a young and healthy white stallion appeared around the corner of the shed and we were, we were talking next to. Oh, my, this is for me, I asked in disbelief. Yes, you may call her anything you want. So many thoughts rushed in my head as to what to call the beautiful horse that stood gracefully eating grass before me. Goddess, that is what I shall call her. Good choice, Sir John said. Chapter 4 our first trip was very uneventful. We just walked around in the boiling sun all day long on our horses, occasionally stopping at a, at a stream for a drink of water. After a few days' trudge, we finally arrived at a large field with Target set up and many other knights and squires. Why are there so many people dressed in armor and some armed with longbows? I eventually asked Sir John. Well, you see, John, this is the squires and knights' training grounds. We'll be here, we will be here for the every day for the next few months, trying to find your skill. The next few days, I acted like I had enjoyed, but that would be a lie. But during that time, Sir John and I found that my big, big strengths and weaknesses. We found that I was to be a skilled archer because of my accuracy and speed. Also felt I, I also felt I sort of let him down when we figured out I was very unskilled at close range with a sword. That next that next few weeks were very, were long trips by land and water. Once we got to Jerusalem, we were met by an army of Saracens. Get down, Sir John yelled to everyone. Get behind whatever you can cut, co whatever cover you can find. As I was running to a patch of borders, I was hit by something in the head. Last thing I remembered was Sir John screaming, "No!" and I drifted off into a deep sleep. To be continued. Meeting for all men at 9 a.m. tomorrow morning, I heard from the king. The meeting was planned to talk about regaining the Holy Land from the Ibit. We got defeated in the last battle, and they controlled the Holy Land. We must gain it back. We're going to attack the Ibit and regain the Holy Land, shouted King Richard. We're leaving in three days to regain the Holy Land. 
We had prepared the last three days for this. We had a defensive formation to defeat the Ibids. Advancing in our defensive formation, we deflected many attacks as we progressively moved south. On August 30th, when we were near Kassara, became in a bad situation, but they managed to make it out. Saladin, the ruler of the Ibids, made a stand against us near the town of Arsif, just north of the town of Jaffa. Saladin made an array of his men and knights facing west. He anchored the forest of Arsif so that we could not pass them and to get to the Holy Land. Go, King Richard, shouted my way. I yelled at my horse to run the way of the Ibids. As, as my horse started moving, I got my bow ready. When I got near the Ibids, I shot a couple shots and soon right after retreated. The Ibids used counterattacks to fight back. Ibid troops would dash forward at us with javelins and arrow. This retaliation continued all day, happening over and over. I had lots of shots throughout the day. Ibid started to get weak from tiring out because of the loss of men and horses from attacks. As we started entering Arsif, that led to a weaker formation, which meant it was easier for the Ibis to attack us. As Saladin did not expect us to break formation, the Ibis had dismounted in order to get better aim with their arrows. As they did so, we broke through their line of troops and overran their position. King Richard called for us knights to attack the Ibis left. We successfully pushed back the enemy's left, which allowed us to defeat a counterattack by Saladin. As we did this, King Richard led some of the other knights against Saladin's center. Richard's charge ended up shattering the rest of the Ibid line, which led to Saladin's army fleeing from the field. Pushing, pushing us, the crusaders looted the Ibid camp. With darkness on its way, King Richard called off any pursuit to knock out Saladin's army. In all, we lost around 1,000 of our 70,000 men, which was no match for the Ibid's loss of over 7,000 men. We hope you enjoyed the stories from medieval storytellers. For FCI, I'm Carl Kinnear, and this is Medieval Storytellers, Episode 3.